0: Now, we come to that which is, I think, without doubt, one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture that certainly has a vivid message for us. And it is a striking picture in full color. I tell you, it's living color that we have here in the 20th chapter. It's the cities of refuge. Now, we've had this before us. The children of Israel had a very interesting law that God gave to them. And you will find out that many tribes and many primitive peoples have had this same thing. Evidently, this is something that was passed on to all of mankind. And here you see it in operation. Now, the first time that we meet the cities of refuge is over in the book of Exodus, the 21st chapter, verse 13. And it says, "...if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I appoint thee a place whither he shall flee." Now, it has to do with this matter of murder. If a man murdered another man, or killed another man, let me say, It could be one of two things. It could be what we call today manslaughter, and it's called that in the Scripture, by the way. That means that a man kills another person accidentally. At least he didn't do it deliberately. And then there is what is known as premeditated murder. A man lies in wait. He plans and plots the death of another. That's premeditated murder. And in Israel, the man that did that was stoned to death. If we had capital punishment in today for murder and that there'd be no ifs, ands about it and a man was executed quickly, did you know that it would save countless lives today? We wouldn't have all these policemen shot. We wouldn't have all the storekeepers held up and shot down like they're an animal. My friend, God knows human nature, and this was the law. But if a man did this premeditated, plotted and planned it, and would shoot a man down, of course, Matt that day he didn't have a gun, but he could use any kind of an instrument and kill him, and kill him immediately, then that was called premeditated. But if it was not premeditated, he did it accidentally, and it's called manslaughter. Now, the man that ran over my mother and killed her. That man had the privilege of going to the jail and talking to him, and they lodged a charge against him. He was drunk when he ran over. Now, I think that's murder myself, and I would call it premeditated murder. But as you know today, it's not called that. It's called manslaughter, and he was treated in court as one guilty of manslaughter. Now, in that day, a relative might say, well, he did this deliberately, and he did this purposely. Suppose when I heard that this man had run over my mother, and I'd said, I'm going to kill that man. Well, may I say to you that under the Mosaic system, there would be a city of refuge that a man could flee to, and he could flee there for protection. Now, you find that this occurs again over in the 35th chapter of the book of Numbers. And there's an entire section there on the cities of refuge. In fact, the 35th chapter. But let me just read one verse there. That's verse 6. And among the cities which ye shall give unto the Levites, there shall be six cities for refuge, which ye shall appoint for the manslayer. That is, one guilty of manslaughter that he may flee thither, and to them ye shall add forty and two cities. Now, what you have given in the 21st chapter we'll come to, you'll see all the cities that were given to the tribe of Levi. But now here are the six cities of refuge that are given. And it was for the manslayer. An example that's given in the scriptures, suppose two men are out in the woods cutting down a tree. And the axe comes off of the handle of one of the men, and hits the other man and kills him. And suppose the brother of the man that is slain says, I know that man had it in for my brother, and he did that purposely, and I'm going to kill him. Well, that man wouldn't have a chance unless there was a place of refuge. Now, out in the Hawaiian Islands, on the big island of Hawaii, Down on the Kona coast, there is a place known as the City of Refuge. And back in the days when they were tribes out there and Christianity hadn't been brought to them at all, they had a City of Refuge, and they were slaying each other. In fact, they had human sacrifices. And all of this garbage given to you by these tour leaders is just so much malarkey, friends, about how they loved each other and they lolled on the beaches and they were just having a wonderful time until the missionaries got there and put moo-moos on them and just broke up a lot of fun. May I tell you, that just isn't the way it happened. They were a moody, doleful people slaying each other, very superstitious, but they had this city of refuge that a man could flee to. And these cities of refuge are mentioned here now that the slayer could go to. Now this has for you and me a great spiritual lesson. The thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ was slain. And the scripture makes it very clear that the Lord Jesus was not only the one slain, but he is our city of refuge today. And we are told over in Hebrews 6 and 18 it says, Who have fled for refuge? to lay hold of the hope set before them. And the reference here, of course, is to those who, though conscious of their own sinfulness, they've availed themselves of the salvation that was secured for them by our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, and all who find a refuge in him are safe forever from the judgment of a holy God. Now, who's guilty of slaying Christ? Well, the whole world is guilty. Both Jew and Gentile stands guilty before God as having participated in that which brought about the death of his Son. But Christ came to give himself a ransom for all, and his sacrifice on the cross has opened up, as it were, a city of refuge for all who put their trust in him. Now, you will notice, and I personally do not like this business of trying to blame the Jew for the crucifixion of Christ. He wasn't crucified on a Jewish cross. He was crucified on a Roman cross. Let's be very specific about that. But it's not going to get you anywhere to try to blame any racial group. And this is the method of the anti-Semites, is always to use this and it's entirely wrong because it alienates many of our Jewish friends today and it just ought not to be that way. But let's understand one thing. They are not the one specifically guilty, but they're in the same sack that you and I are. We've been all put in the same sack and it's been shaken up and friends, we're all in that together, and we're all guilty. Now, the Scripture makes it clear that all are guilty. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says, Now, brethren, I know that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. And therefore, Peter could say to them, Repent, therefore, and turn to God. Now, the apostle Paul makes it clear that the Gentiles are also guilty. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 8, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. For we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now according to these passages, God looks upon the whole world as guilty of the sin of manslaughter in connection with the death of Christ. And now I want to be personal and I want to be specific. You know who's guilty? My friend, you're guilty. But you can point the finger right back at me and say you are guilty. Why? Because he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And with his stripes we're healed. What? Well, he bore our sins. We're healed of our sins. Because he died on the cross, my friend, because you and I are sinners. And if we hadn't been, he wouldn't have died there. You may be sure of that. And... He is the one that died like that, and we're guilty. The world's guilty. Did you ever stop to think that you and I live in a world today that's guilty of the death of the Son of God? The whole world is guilty. It's because of this world that he died, my friend. And Paul says he persecuted him ignorantly, you see. But we're guilty. It's manslaughter, but we're guilty of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us. Don't try to blame it on a certain race or a certain segment of the population or this person or that person. You and I are guilty today. But thank God, his very death made a city of refuge, a place for you and me to come. And that is what the writer to the Hebrews said, as we saw, we fled for refuge to him. And it's pretty dangerous not to go to him. And the Bible gives an example of one. Abner was one of the generals, in fact, the captain of Saul. And he came over to David. And believe me, Joab didn't care for him. Joab was David's man. And Abner actually, with no malice or forethought at all, he slew. Azahel was the brother of Joab. And believe me, That meant Joab was going to try to get him if he could. And this man Abner knew it, and he went into a city of refuge. But you see, the thing happened. Old Joab enticed him out. He used trickery to get him out of the city. And when he got him out of the city, he slew him. He left the place of refuge. And you know what David said about the death of Abner? He said, died Abner as a fool died." My friend, that's what David said. What do you suppose God says of you today when there's a city of refuge and you're guilty of manslaughter? You're a guilty sinner before Almighty God, and you don't go to the city of refuge? My friend, you're foolish, very foolish indeed. And have you fled to him for refuge? There's going through my mind a hymn that has in it, You who to Jesus for refuge have fled? Well, what about you? Are you one of the ones the song is speaking of? Have you fled to Jesus for refuge? There's protection there. And he removes the guilt. What a wonderful chapter. This little chapter is here, and it's just about as boring as anything could be if you read it through, my friends. And you notice I didn't do that. But let me now read a verse or two. And the Lord also spake unto Joshua, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. What a tremendous chapter! this is. And that's all of it, by the way, that we're going to read. Now, we do want to begin here at the 21st chapter. And we're still, by the way, in this section in which we see the cities of the Levites. This all has to do with the land divided. And here we see the cities of the Levites. And we're told here that as we had been told before, that God made it very clear to them that the Levites would not be given land. They would be given cities and all the tribes, and they'd be there that they could minister to the people. They were the priestly tribe, and that was to scatter them out. But they were actually not to have any possession at all. Now, in verse 1 and 2, let me read chapter 21. Then came near the heads of the fathers of the Levites unto Eleazar the priest, and unto Joshua the son of Nun, and unto the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spake unto them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded by the hand of Moses to give us cities to dwell in, with a suburban area thereof for our cattle. And they had a suburban problem apparently in that day also. Now, you have in this the cities that were given to them. And they were to be given 42 cities for the tribe. And they were scattered out all the way from Dan to Beersheba, by the way. Now, in verse 44, we've now come to the division of the land. Actually, it's been divided now. And we read in verse 44, And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he swore unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Now, in the land of Canaan... In the land that they had moved into, they now possess that. But as we've said before, that was a very small segment of the entire land God had promised to them. Now, if they are to get any more land, they'll have to go and possess it. The rule still stands every place that your foot stands upon. But that which they possessed is theirs, and there's not an enemy now. And they can enter into rest. And this is the rest that for us today is the rest of redemption. And that's the rest that you and I desperately need. This is an age that is under great tension. Pressures are on folk today. And if there's one thing that the average Christian needs is to enter into the rest that God has for them. With the children of Israel, because of unbelief, they could not enter in. And even Joshua could not give them the rest that they need. And we are told in Hebrews, "...there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that's entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his." And we're to labor to enter into that rest. How? By faith. That is the only way. And that was the invitation that the Lord Jesus gave when they rejected him as king and he rejected their cities. Then he gave a personal invitation that stands today. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you. That's the rest of redemption. Are you weary today, my friend? Well, he calls you, and this is the rest now these people have entered into. My, how wonderful it must have been after the long, weary journey through the wilderness and then fighting in the land to take their possessions. Now they've entered into their possessions. What a wonderful thrill it must have been to each man, each family, given a certain parcel of ground. They go into it, and they begin to cultivate it. And they began to eat the fruits of it. They began to raise the cattle. My, what a glorious, wonderful thing this was for these people. My, I can't think of anything that was as wonderful as this was for them. Now, in the 22nd chapter, we come to another very marvelous lesson, I think, for us today. And... You have here an evidence of the fact that what we have been saying to you that one of the first lessons to learn in reading the Bible is to distinguish between to us and for us. Now not all scriptures directed to us, but all scriptures for us, and all scriptures given by inspiration of God and it's profitable but for different things. It can be for reproof. It can be for instruction. It can be for our information, you see. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the high calling. Now, I think Paul's speaking to you and to me as believers, and he's only speaking to believers there. But back here in the book of Joshua, when Joshua was told, within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan, well, I'm not planning in the next three days to cross the Jordan River, friends. This, you see, is not to us, it's for us. Now, I want to ask again the question that we ask here at the very beginning, have you crossed over Jordan? And it gives me an opportunity, I guess, to call attention to This book we're sending out for Joshua, Have You Crossed Over Jordan? And in that we have a chapter on A.I. and I. We believe these are the two greatest truths that believers need today in living the Christian life. And we saw that when they crossed the Jordan River, that spoke of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Now we're told that we are buried with Christ in baptism, that is, we're identified with him. And we are raised with him in newness of life. Now, when they crossed over, they became citizens of the land of Canaan, the citizens of the promised land. And they are from then on to be forever identified with the land. And the minute that they went out of that land, they are the wandering Jew. But in that land, it is theirs. Now, you will recall that the two and a half tribes, they just didn't cross over Jordan. But they were told that they must send over their army and help the other tribes, which they did, by the way. Now, when you come to this 22nd chapter, we're told, and I'm reading, when Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. You've obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. Now, Joshua calls this segment of the army for review, these two and a half tribes. And he commends them. He rewards them by what they've done. He tells them that they have done a very wonderful thing in helping their brethren. Now he gives them a warning in verse 5, "...but take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charge you to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul." Now these two-and-a-half tribes were warned that though they're on the other side, Jordan, that they are to follow the Mosaic system. And they are given that warning. Then Joshua dismissed them with a blessing he pronounced upon them, verse 6. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went under their tents. Now they returned back to the land. And we're told here in verse 10, "...and when they came..." Unto the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. Now, this may seem odd since they dwelt on the east side of the river, but apparently they built it on the west side of Jordan. And there were some scholars that concluded several years ago that it was on the east side. And they searched for the ruins, didn't find them there. But Grosser, archaeologist, he discovered the ruins on the west side. And they are there, actually, to this day. But now the thing that interests us is this. They built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. Now, that's a strange expression. It's so strange that I had to smile that when I looked at my notes here, and somewhere along the line, when they were published, they took out the altar to see two. And if you have my notes and outlines, you'll notice there for chapter 22, the construction of altar to see. Well, that's not it. It's an altar to see two. And it should be read like that. And you can make that correction in your notes. Now, literally, it means an altar great to sight. That means you could see it a long ways off. It was an imposing structure that could be seen from the east side. And it was visible at a great distance. In fact, in any direction they happened to go. Now, the ruins are also, that they found, are in a prominent place today. And it was built there, as Bishop Horsley says, a great altar in appearance. But it was not actually an altar. Will you notice that what is said about it? Here it says, when they came unto the borders of Jordan, that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, and the children of Gad, And the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan. Notice, a great altar to see to. A great imposing monument to look to, to remind them of something. Now, very frankly, when the rest of the children of Israel heard that they were doing this, they all gathered at Shiloh, greatly upset. Verse 12. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. Why? Well, they thought they were building an altar to offer sacrifice on and to divide the nation. And very frankly, what happened was that they came down upon them and found out that they didn't intend to offer sacrifice at all. There was always the danger of a division, you see. Let me drop down verse 16 Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that ye builded you an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? You see, that was the danger of division. And actually, they thought they were building an altar to Baal. Verse 17, Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us? "...from which we are not cleansed until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord." They remembered during the time of Balaam, when he taught Balak to cause Israel to sin. And you remember, Balaam's thought to Balak was, if you can't fight them, join them. That's the same thing you have in the cliché today. If you can't fight city hall, join it. And that's what a lot of them do today, especially the politicians. Now, what they were to do was to intermarry with Israel, which they did. And it turned many of the children of Israel worshiping Balaam. And God sent the serpents among them. They were judged. And they were afraid that was what was going to happen here. Now, the two and a half tribes, they come up with a very good explanation. Notice verse 21. Then the children of Reuben. And the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know, if it be a rebellion or if it be in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day, that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord and to offer their own burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon. Let the Lord himself require it. In other words, they had not built an altar to offer sacrifice on. It was just to remind them that they still belong to the nation Israel. And apparently it was a duplicate, only on a much enlarged scale, of the altar, the burnt altar that they had in the tabernacle. But they were never to offer a sacrifice upon it, you see. Then they go on here to explain they were sincere, listen to them, that we have built us an altar to turn from following God. Well, it's not for offering sacrifices. Verse 24, and if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying, in time to come your children might speak under our children, saying, what have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? And they actually were sincere in doing this thing. Now, their explanation, and you can read it on there, I'll not read any more, but when you drop down to verse 31, you find out that the nine and a half tribes accepted the explanation, and they realized they were a little hasty. Notice verse 31, "...and Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said unto the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, to the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive..." that the Lord is among us. Because you have not committed this trespass against the Lord, now you've delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. You see, they accepted this, and they acknowledged they'd been a little hasty. You know, we fundamentalists are a little hasty. Sometimes we say things and do things we ought not to do, friends. We are sincere in it. We think we're defending the Word of God, but actually we're not. And they made a mistake in coming at war against their brethren. Now, verse 34, we read, And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar Ed. And that means a witness. That's why it was a witness to the true altar, and it was not to have sacrifice. For it shall be a witness between us that the Lord is God. Now, that sounded very good. Now, this has caused many commentators to place their seal of approval upon it. I have no commentary which condemns that altar. A great many folk, or oh, I say a great many. I know a few, in fact, some preachers say, what commentaries do you read? Well, if you think I get my sermons from commentaries, then this, may I say, will be a little different. You won't find this in a commentary. This is an interpretation, and I'm not alone in it that I'm going to give. Now let's look at this altar that's called Ed, a witness. Now we look at Ed, and not just a cursory glance and just a surface explanation's not satisfactory. In the tabernacle there was the brazen altar. And the children were told that was the only altar, Deuteronomy twelve twenty seven. They were told to destroy all other altars. Exodus thirty four thirteen. Now, there was to be one exception. In Deuteronomy 27, 4, 8, they were to take 12 stones out of Jordan and put them up as a memorial. Now, the two and a half tribes never crossed over. And the Jordan actually divided them. And the altar recognized that. And that altar was prima facie evidence that they were divided. It made way for the division of the nation later on. Now it's east and west, nine and a half tribes versus two and a half tribes. Later on, it'll be a division north and south, ten tribes in the north and two in the south. Now that altar that was yonder in the nation Israel speaks of Christ. And this is another altar, that altar in the tabernacle. And that was the place of unity which was about the person of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ. And friends, I can meet with any man who will exalt Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus said, I pray that they might be one, even as we are one. That's an organic unity of those that are brought around Christ. And the altar speaks of the death of Christ, his sacrifice. And friends, they had built a bloodless altar, what, to see to. Now, may I make this statement very clear. Liberalism has divided the church. Now, they have accused the fundamentalists of being schismatic. May I say to you, they have departed from the cross of Christ, the deity of Christ, and they don't like an altar with blood. And they have put up an ed, if you please. They have put up an altar as these did where no sacrifice was to be offered. And they have a bloodless Christ today that they talk about. And their conduct, I think, of the two and a half tribes reveals that this was a departure. By their fruits, our Lord says, Ye shall know them. Several hundred years went by, and the Lord Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee one day, and he came to the country of the Gadarenes, and they were citizens of Gadara. And who are they? They are the tribe of Gad. They were on the wrong side of Jordan, and there was a demon-possessed man dwelling among tombs, and they had some pigs over there. And he put the demons in the pigs. They were in the pig business. Somebody says, oh, he shouldn't have destroyed the pigs. They shouldn't have been in the pig business, friend. They were on the wrong side. Of the Jordan. It is liberalism that has divided the church today. They put up a beautiful altar, a bloodless Christ, one that never actually lived, one without deity, one without ability to save humanity. My friend, I ask you the question today have you crossed over Jordan? Have you crossed over through the death and resurrection of Christ and entered into the rest of redemption? which he offers. This is a tremendous chapter, is it not? We come to the 23rd chapter here in the book of Joshua, and the 24th chapter, the last chapter, and here you have the last message of Joshua. And here in chapter 23, there is the call to the leaders of Israel for courage and certainty. And then in chapter 24, the call to all the tribes of Israel for consecration and consideration of the covenant with God. And then you have the death of Joshua. In other words, what Joshua is doing is giving really his deathbed speech. Now, this is something that's becoming very familiar here in the Word of God already in the Old Testament, We had first, you remember, that Jacob called his twelve sons about him, and he gave these prophecies concerning them. And then we had Moses calling the twelve tribes. The twelve sons are now twelve tribes. And Moses called them about him at the very end of his life before he went up into the mountain, Mount Nebo, and then he gave his deathbed word to them. Now, here is Joshua, who's been their leader now for 40 years, who's brought them into the land, and he's now giving his final message to them before his death. This is, I think, something to note as we go through. Now, as we come to chapter 23, shall we listen to Joshua? It came to pass a long time after that the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, and for their elders, and for their heads, and for their judges, for their officers, and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age. And ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. Now, you notice when he calls these leaders around him and all of the nation, as it were, are represented here, if not there in person. And he tells them, he says, I'm now ready to retire. I'm a senior citizen. And here's my final word to you. Now, you have seen... What God has done for you. What he's saying is what Paul will say later on, or did say later on. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Joshua's saying to these people, you know what God's done for you. You know how he's led you. Now he says, verse 4, Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes, from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off, even under the great sea westward. And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you, and drive them out of your sight, and ye shall possess their land, as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. Now again, this is what Moses had called them to do, and now Joshua calls them to do the same thing. Verse 8, But cleave unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. You see, in the time of grave danger, crossing into that land, encountering a land filled with an enemy and giants in the land, and things they did not know or expect, and with all of these things round about them, and fear on every side, it kept them very close to the Lord. Now, Joshua recognized that when they got into the land, they entered rest, they were having peace, and prosperity, and plenty, that they'd get away from God. And isn't that the story of human nature? Human nature never changes, and today we have the same situation. I was always disturbed after World War II that God had judged Europe, and even Russia, and Korea, and how these other nations had suffered. And we came through unscathed, actually. Then, here, after the war, other nations went through a terrible period, and our nation was greatly blessed. And we entered a period of prosperity and affluence. And we're still in it today. And I couldn't understand it. I thought, my, it looks like God would judge us. But you know what he did? He did judge us, but he judged us with prosperity and plenty, he tested us. And the real test, the hardest test, was prosperity and plenty. The nation of affluence, nation of great world power. And Look at us today. Look where we've come to. I say the judgment of God has been upon us because the most dangerous period any people can go through is not the time of grave danger or the trial or the test It's when they enter the period of prosperity. And that's the reason that Joshua now is giving them this charge. God has begun a good work in you. He's done these things for you. Now you cleave to him. You stay close to God. You obey him. And if you do that, God will continue to bless you. But if you do not, verse 11, take good heed therefore unto yourselves, that you love the Lord your God. Else if ye do in any wise go back, and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. Judgment of God would be upon them. Now that is the trend and theme of this man's message to his people. Now, in chapter 24, we have the call to all the tribes of Israel for actually consecration and a consideration of the covenant that God had made with them and that they had made with God. Now, notice verse 1 And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges, for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Now this is the thing I want you to notice in this, for this is very important. Verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Now, this reveals something that we didn't actually know before. We may have suspected it. But we didn't know it. When God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees, and that's on the other side the Jordan River, the other side of the flood. Actually, the word Hebrew means the man from the other side. And Abraham came from over there into this land. And the interesting thing is that Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. They were idolaters. When I made that statement back in the book of Genesis, I had a letter from a party that said, how do you know that? You merely presume that. Well, frankly, I didn't presume it. I knew this was coming later on, that this would be made perfectly clear to us that this man, Terah, the father of Abraham, was an idolater. Now, this is something that I think that we need to know. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God make a nation out of Abraham? Why did God move in this direction? Well, let's look at something that maybe we haven't looked at before. After the Tower of Babel, man totally departed from the Lord. Just not some people. When you read the account of the Tower of Babel, Actually, there was a total apostasy. No one, no one served God, not even Terah, the father of Abraham. They were scattered, and they went out in every direction. And they had a knowledge of the living and true God. And the very interesting thing is that today all of the tribes of the earth, all that are in idolatry, all that are in deepest paganism, and some of them that are the most heathen of all, they are the ones that have a clear cut understanding that way back at the beginning their ancestors served the living and the true God. But they got away from it. And now at the Tower of Babel, there was total apostasy. Now, what can God do? Well, he's God. He can do most anything, of course. But what can he do? that will be consistent with his person, his attributes, and with his character. How is he going to recover mankind? How will he do it? Man is totally apostate. He could judge the human family and exterminate them. That is, remove them from this earth. Get rid of them. Wouldn't be any point of having a human family on this earth. It could be just as bleak as the moon is. For that matter, friends, God could have made this earth just exactly like the moon if he'd wanted to, but he didn't. And now, if he's going to recover mankind, he's got to get into mankind some way. So what did he do when he called Abraham? He said to Abraham, I want you to get away. Now, apparently, here is a man. Who had the knowledge of the living and true God and had a desire in his heart to know the living and true God. And there in Ur of the Chaldees, God said to him, Abraham, get out from your people. Now we know why, don't we? Why did he say, Get away from your relatives, get away from Tirah? Why? Why Tirah is an idolatra, and he's worshiping heathen gods. Therefore, God says to him, Get away from all of that. Now God called Abraham aside in order that through Abraham God might deal with this man, make a nation, and through that nation bring into the world the Messiah. Now, he didn't do it in that land. He had to make Him a nation down in the brickyards of Egypt. Friends, if he's going to do anything for you and me, it's going to be in the fires. I just don't believe, friends, that he can use a mollycoddle raised in our contemporary culture today and in our contemporary churches today. We have the most sickening group of saints in the average church why they do not know what it is to be loyal and true to God. They don't know what it is to stand for Him, why they go off in every direction, why a Bible-taught church in a few months can depart from it and be putting on programs that they wouldn't have heard of years ago. Why? Because the human heart is like that. Now, Joshua here gives a warning. He says, now, God, on the other side of the flood, he called our fathers. They were idolatrous over there, and God called us to get us away from idolatry. The first commandment Moses gave, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and the second Thou shalt not make any likeness of anything. Now they've come into a land where everything is idolatry. And they didn't get rid of all the people in that land. And they are a real danger. And Joshua now is calling these people to a dedication, a real consecration that is a turning their life completely over to God because they can't even trust themselves. This, my friend, is something that's very important. Now listen to him in verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers serve, that were on the other side of the flood are the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, the more I know about Joshua, the better I like him. He has stood down through the years in the church in the shadow of Moses. So much so that we think that he's sort of a miniature Moses. But this man, Joshua, is a man of great stature. A man that God made no mistake in using this man. And we've seen several instances of that. He's an average man. But you know, God can use an average man, and this book shows that an average man that is dedicated to God can be mightily used of God. And so now he says to the nation Israel, and this is free will with a vengeance. He said, do you want to go back to the gods of your fathers, the old pagan gods they served? Or do you want to serve the gods of the Amorites? They're all idolatrous. Now, he says, you can choose, but as for me and my house, we made our choice. We're going to serve the Lord. My friend, this was a tremendous challenge, and I'd like to add that word to this chapter subject. It's the call to all the tribes of Israel, it's a challenge to all the tribes of Israel for consecration and consideration of their covenant with God. And the people, of course, noticed. They answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, and God forbid that they should, because they did. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up, and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight. Now, you'd think, that these people would want to stay close to God and serve him. My friend, what about us today? It's easy to point our finger way back yonder, not quite 4,000 years, 3,500 years, and say, boy, weren't they a sorry lot. Weren't they failures? We'd never do that. What about us today? How close are we staying to the living and the true God? Now, Joshua again says in verse 20, If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he'll turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that he hath done you good. The goodness of God. God has been so good to us. And yet we can go along in a lackadaisical manner and think we can do as we please. My friend, today, God is a God of mercy, and a God of love, a God of comfort, God of help. But I want to tell you, he's a God of judgment also. And the people here, though, in verse 21, they said unto Joshua, Nay, but we'll serve the Lord. My, I tell you, they sound good, don't they? Now, verse 25, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and took a great stone, set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. In other words, when he wrote this, it was put on the same scroll that the five books of Moses were on. Now we have here the death of Joshua. Verse 29, it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-serah, which is in Mount Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gaash. And I've seen that, friends, as we said before, that Timnath-serah is a pretty barren place. That's the worst place in that area up there, and it's a beautiful area. But believe me, this is not the place you'd want to choose. This is the land that Joshua had taken. Now, will you notice? And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up, "...out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor." Now, you see, Joseph was the father of the Ephraimites and Manasseh. And so when he had left commandment, we saw that in the book of Genesis, that when they came up out of the land of Egypt, they were to bring his bones... And they brought him for 40 years through the wilderness. Now they're to bury him in that land. Why? He's expecting to be raised from the dead someday in that land. And we're told that they buried him and the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph, That is, of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, verse 33. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him in a hill that pertained to Phinehas, his son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim. Now, here is the second high priest that dies, and another one will come on the scene. And Joshua, the leader that followed Moses, he dies. Now, this book is bounded with death. It begins with the death of Moses. It ends with the death here of Eleazar, and also, of course, the death of Joshua. And the thing that interests me here, though, is that they buried Eleazar in a hill that pertaineth to Phinehas, his son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim. And the question is, the priests were given no land, yet here is a priest that acquired a nice little piece of real estate. You see, there is the beginning of that departure from the living and the true God. This is a tremendous book. I hope that you've learned to appreciate Joshua and also the tremendous thing that took place when the children of Israel came out of the wilderness and came into that land.